From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Her family fled violence and oppression in Ethiopia. I mean, kids were shot at and kids were killed. Some unlucky ones, they didn't get the chance I did. In the decades since, Yeshi Gebra Meskel became a small business owner in Denver, first opening a bakery. Now it's ice cream, which she says is about more than dessert. It doesn't create a bad energy in the neighborhood, honestly. It helps kind of make it a more peaceful environment. Really, that was the initial motivation of doing an ice cream parlor. A profile for Black Restaurant Week. Then students in Delta County get a lesson in patience. Plus, removing obstacles that make housing, recreation, and public buildings inaccessible to people with disabilities. The easiest way to make an impact through a transfer of appreciated stocks is to have your broker electronically transfer the stock from your account to ours, which may also come with tax benefits. Learn more on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. There are two things Yeshi Gebra Meskel remembers from her childhood in Ethiopia. First was how many kids were around. We were like 12 of us in the family, so I didn't even go to the neighbors. We had enough kids. Second, there came a point when she was no longer safe in Ethiopia. So her family fled the civil war, dodging bullets. Oh, yeah. We ran out of the country. A bunch of us got together and we just left because they were killing kids. And then we walk through different areas that we don't know. And we got to the next neighbor, which is Sudan. And from Sudan, we applied as immigrants to come to here, to this country. So, yes, I mean, kids were shot at and kids were killed. Some unlucky ones, they didn't get the chance I did. That was some 40 years ago. Gebra Meskel eventually landed in Denver. She ran a bakery for a time, awful hours. But her new venture weaves the two themes from her childhood together having lots of kids around, and making sure they feel safe. Did you want to sample anything? Um, I think I want to um, sample lemon cheesecake, please. Sure. Sounds good. Gebra Meskel opened an ice cream shop just off East Colfax in Denver. She co-owns Walia Creamery with her sister, and you just heard the manager there, Shuit Habtu, scooping samples for seven-year-old Olivia Katz. Parents often stop here after picking their kids up from school. Is it okay if I try um, thin mint chocolate and cream, please? That's our flavor of the month. I'm glad you're trying that one. An ice cream parlor is a good environment for kids and families to come together, and sometimes even friends. And it doesn't create a bad energy in the neighborhood, honestly. It helps kind of make it a more peaceful environment. So really that was the initial motivation of doing an ice cream parlor. Uh, Most of the neighbors did not like some of the environment that we had in the area before and for a reason because safety was an issue. There were bars, there were stuff like that. So I just said, no, we don't need bars in the middle of the neighborhood. We can really do something else. Yes, you make a little less money until you get it going, but it is 
a good way of I can sleep at night. I'm not adding into the problems for the neighborhood. And you can sleep because you don't have to bake anymore. Exactly. <laughs> we learned of Yeshi Gebramaskal and her Walia Creamery through Black Restaurant Week, which is underway and runs through Sunday in Denver and nationwide. Hers is actually one of several black-owned ice cream parlors in the city taking part. Also on the map, a black-owned tea shop, a barbecue food truck, a soul food joint, and a place that specializes in New Orleans po'boys. We'll link to Black Restaurant Week at CPR.org. What does Walia mean? Walia is a name for a girl that means friendly. And I love that because we are kind of friendly by nature. And the team, the team works here, is everybody is friendly and we expect it as a business also. And then it's also a nice animal that is almost instinct from the Apex family. It's a wild god and it lives in the high mountains in Ethiopia. And there are about 500 of them. So we just say maybe it reminds us of home. I sat down with Gebra Meskel on a recent afternoon in her shop. The sun was shining after a long stretch of bleak winter days, so there was a steady stream of customers craving ice cream. But as you'll hear, Gebra Meskel has encountered hurdles, notably the pandemic. She has also struggled with marketing, which Black Restaurant Week was designed in 2016 to help with. I've been wondering as spring comes, how does an ice cream business fare in the winter? It is very slow, and this winter has been very difficult, but we're getting out from the winter to the summer and spring, so we are excited. And did you bake that in, sorry for the pun, did you bake that into the business plan, that you knew the winter would be harder? Yes, and uh, the past winters, we did some baked goods that are interesting in the fall and uh, winter to kind of make up the business that we lose. Sometimes you do have to come up with new different products that doesn't take you away from the main uh, main business, but it's a little different because cold is cold, so baked goods kind of fill in the gaps. Gebra Meskel has tried to carve a niche out for herself with a wide array of both dairy and vegan ice creams, standards like chocolate and vanilla and strawberry, and more adventurous choices, Earl Grey, lavender, honey, ginger, pear, all made from scratch. Where did you learn to cook? At home. My mom made every food we ate and everybody, so we are used to making stuff from scratch. As a child, when I grew up, we didn't even have a fridge, so we have to make everything every day. Is there much of an ice cream culture in Ethiopia? Is that something you grew up with? Not really. I mean, no ice cream out there. Right now, yes. Now they, the world is changing. The world is learning from each other. So, yes, there is. But at the ch- as a child, dessert was not even a main product people talk about. You know, if you're going to eat a dessert, it will be a nice fruit or something, but no ice cream at all. I wonder if any of the flavors and the traditions you grew up with make it into the ice cream. Yes, like ginger, purposely we put it there because ginger is a good healthy spice and cinnamon. Our caramel apple has cinnamon on it. 
and some of the teas, you know, even though maybe it's not Earl Grey, but black tea is common in my culture. So, and we know it has good antioxidant and healthy things. And we really do put real flavors. We don't just put a, a, a dash. We do make sure the tea is soaked in and the flavor is there and all the nutritional value of the spices are in there because when I do spice apple, we do put cloves, cinnamon, ginger, all those good stuff. The chai is true chai, you know, and chai is something that we grew up. Our teas have the chai product, so. When you put tea in ice cream, I guess you start by boiling water and making tea? Not really. <laughs> there is a different way of doing it. Yes, that's the normal way to drink. Heating it up, you are squeezing the nutrition faster. But if I leave, leave it in the coconut cream or coconut milk overnight, it's going to suck all the flavor and I give it enough time so that I get all those things without heating the product. You know, it's interesting that several of the businesses in Denver taking part in Black Business Week are ice cream parlors. Yours isn't the only one. And I wonder if uh, you've met some of these other ice cream entrepreneurs in town, and maybe if you wanted to comment on how the ice cream market is in Denver. Is, it, is this a particularly popular place for ice cream? Well, we are a coming up business. We are young business. So a new independent business takes time to establish it. And uh, I know how to make a very good ice cream, but I may not be as sharp as I need to be in terms of promoting the business. So I can tell you my business is not at the level I want it to be. Uh, I think ice cream is a good business in Denver. Denver is very unique because I used to live in New York City. New York City people didn't eat ice cream a lot in the winter, but Denverites do. So sometimes when it's a snowy day, you get customers coming. And so we don't close even throughout the year. So it is a good business. And once you do the initial investment, it's probably a lot easier restaurant business than any other, I think, because of the labor demands and the scheduling also. So for that reason, I would think it's a good business for Denver people. And I haven't met many ice cream business owners, so maybe that's something I need to do. Some networking. <laughs> if I have the timeline correct, you opened just before the pandemic. Yes, that's uh, 2019. And uh, we were kind of learning to do the business, getting everything going. And it was okay. But all of a sudden, we had the, the pandemic and we had all kinds of other issues too. We had... Uh, you know, demonstrations about the one of the young men who got killed in Minnesota, I think. And that was also many, many people came to support black businesses because of that. And during the pandemic, that was really helping us a lot. Given that it's Black Business Week, do you think that there are particular challenges you've faced being a person of color, running a business, in Colorado? 
I can't tell you I faced because I'm a black person, but I can tell you I may have faced because of the experience what the business, you know, I'm a good producer, I can produce products, but do I really truly know how to promote the business? So in a way, uh, it's not because I'm only black, but not being an experienced business person, in that sense, I may have have a disadvantage. Mm. Uh, so that's what I think the disadvantage is not having the mentors or even me not reaching out to people who I could use as mentors or even professionals who can help us. It sounds like you are in search of a network to some extent. And I wonder how you deal with the stress of running a small business. Well, you have to just get up and do it again and again. Sometimes it is stressful because you know it takes money to run the business. And if the money is not coming, so yes, you get stressed out. But I have lived in America. I I was not born here. I had to pass through real difficult things to get here. So I always, I have a reference point where you can still make it. Things can get hard, but you will still make it because I did as a child, as a young person, were able to come here and establish myself, didn't even speak the language. So if you can go through that, you can go through this one too. But I wouldn't mind learning to make it easier and make the proper amount of income for the business. This is not a question I ask most guests, but what is your favorite flavor of ice cream? In our case, we have amazing chocolate. The base mix is always the same for everything, the vanilla mix, but then it's the flavorings that we put. And the cocoa that we use is Dutch process, good cocoa, and we generous on it. We don't just flavor it. We make sure you can taste the chocolate. So that's what chocolate is my favorite. Yeshi Gebremeskel, co-owner of Walia Creamery, just off East Colfax in Denver. Black Restaurant Week runs through Sunday. We'll link to the map of participating businesses at CPR.org. And before we go, of course, I had to try some of the ice cream for myself. Stepping into the glorious afternoon sun, I found a seat on Walia's patio. Oh, she's right. That chocolate is so rich. And all I can think about are the warmer months to come and perhaps a little bit more ice cream. Squint your eyes and look a bit closer. I'm not between you and your ambition. I am a poster girl with no poster. And I am 32 flavors and thin some. And I am beyond your peripheral vision. So you might want to turn your head because Still to come, a class project that stretched across four years and eventually paid off. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. For the first time in many years, Denver voters will choose a new mayor. That's just one of the many things on Denver's ballot. Everything a Denverite needs to know before ballots are due April 4th, all in the 2023 election guide at denverite.com.
Colorado's doing away with offensive names for geographic features. It can be a slow process, which students in Delta County learned firsthand. This began in our freshman year, and now it's finally come to a close four years later. Damien Altamirano is indeed now a senior at Cedar Edge High School. He and his classmates took on a challenge issued by Commissioner Don Supis to rename two Delta County features. I'm loath to say them, but it's important to the story. They are Negro Creek and Negro Mesa. The class that submitted a new name that commissioners liked best would get a pizza party. The freshman class won with Clay Creek and Clay Mesa. Student Alexia Funk says it reflected the geology. Why is it want to make sure we chose an appropriate name and everything that was relevant and that there wasn't even anything out there, that no one really goes out there, that, it, yeah, it wasn't a big landmark in our area. After Delta County commissioners signed off on the student's suggestion, it had to go to the state renaming advisory board. But committee members said they wanted more and were cold on clay. Included in their pushback, did the previous name reference incidents of racial violence that needed to be considered? Alexia said student council members spoke with historians in the area to try to find out. We heard a lot of interesting takes on it, but um, at the end of the day, we never came to a conclusive idea of why it was called that. Our leading theory with why it was originally named the way it was named was um, during the summer, uh, the mud gets kind of washed away and there's a lot of black rock that is down in the creek. So we assumed that they saw the black rock and then <laughs> old white Americans are like, oh, slap the name on that. Still, the Colorado Renaming Board continued to push for different names, like Reparation Creek and Reparation Mesa, names they said could offer healing. Damien wonders if board members on the Front Range were making assumptions about rural Delta County. They believed that we were a little less educated and weren't able to discern the real impacts of it, which, to some degree, maybe we can't. But at least we try our best to really take all of that into account and be aware of it. Adrian Benavides is a former Colorado lawmaker and member of the advisory board. She noted in a meeting last August that the panel wanted names that acknowledged past wrongs. Yes, we can look at other geographic things like clay, but clay is throughout the state. I mean, the name of the state is Colorado, which is red for the color clay of the dirt. It's really about the process the students went through. Not that they did anything wrong, but they weren't looking at some of the things that I think we've placed importance on. Alexia says it wasn't their intention to sweep history under the rug. They pitched a compromise to the board, a plaque at Clay Creek, explaining why the previous name had to go. At the end of the day, we wanted to stick to the name Clay Creek and Clay Mesa even after our research. And then we came to the conclusion of proposing the plaque as the idea because there was such a controversy about us, like, burying history, like, negative history that involved that location. That plaque will be the first signage in the area. In other words, the Creek and Mesa's previous names weren't posted at the site. Delta County Commissioner Don Supas. I mean, pretty much everybody... In Delta County that's lived here forever, I I, I bet 10 percent of them might even know where it was at or what it was called. In the end, it was up to Governor Jared Polis to decide which name to submit to the federal commission that has the final say. 
The students wrote to Polis to make their case, and Commissioner Supis made a personal appeal on their behalf. I had a chance to talk to the governor uh, at a conference this last fall, just mention it to him. So uh, I was I was pretty surprised when I got the call from the governor's office saying, yeah, they, they decided to go with, with the name the kids chose. So it was, it was pretty exciting. And now Alexia says she's pleased, if a little exhausted, to see Clay Creek and Clay Mesa in Delta County. To be honest, it was very frustrating, but actually having to succeed now actually brought a spark into us a lot about um, knowing that we can actually make a difference to some extent if we just try hard enough and lobby enough, I guess is the key. And that um, if we've tried pushing hard enough, that's inspiring, I guess. But um, it's also a great taste to know that government is very difficult to get everyone to agree on one thing. The U.S. Board of Geographic Names made the change official earlier this month. Colorado still has plenty of items on its renaming list. There's another Negro Creek in the next county over. It's one of many geographic features with that name. There's also a draw, kind of like a gully, by that name in Montezuma County that is currently under consideration by the federal board. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with making the state more accessible from housing to public restrooms to the great outdoors. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Pikes Peak once bore the name of the first non-native to reach its summit, Edwin James, who called the landscape a region of astonishing beauty. James traveled west in 1820 with the first major expedition since Lewis and Clark. At 22, he was already an observant botanist, describing hundreds of plants previously unknown to Western science, including the Colorado Columbine. On that expedition, James also cared for dogs and horses, while others ignored them. He witnessed native people driven from their lands and settlers indiscriminately killing bison. Years later, he criticized the greed of the fur trade, translated the New Testament into Ojibwe, and turned his Iowa farmhouse into a stop on the Underground Railroad. Pikes Peak is no longer named after Edwin James, but his name does live on in the scientific names of 24 plant species, a wilderness area spanning three Colorado counties, and a 13er on the Continental Divide, James Peak. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio with the support of Coble and Company. Colorado could be more accessible, according to advocates for people with disabilities, be it housing, recreation, or public facilities. They are pushing an ambitious slate of bills to everyone's benefit, they say. Public affairs reporter Benta Berkland and editor Megan Verlee take a closer look in Purplish, CPR's podcast about politics and policy. Three and a half years ago, Chad Winthrop was living an outdoorsman's dream in Alaska, exploring the backcountry and doing all different sorts of activities. Then in one moment, everything changed. My spinal cord injury was in a paragliding accident in Alaska in one of the most beautiful places on earth. Winthrop's injury left him with limited use of his legs. He now uses a wheelchair and he ended up moving to the Denver area for rehabilitation at Craig Hospital. It's one of the top places in the world for spinal cord injuries. He was 44 years old. And uh, it really gave me a new lens on disability. He said at the beginning he just didn't know all he didn't know. And he had to learn to navigate life in a whole new way, starting with the apartment he rented in Englewood to be near the hospital. Well, the elevator turned out to be a chronic problem. 
and it would be broken for days or weeks on end and they would offer all sorts of, you know, oh, we'll carry you up and it's just, you have to let me out of the lease. I recently met Winthrop at the state capitol. He was there for a big event to kick off Disability Rights Awareness Month. Thank you everyone for showing up. It is so awesome to see so many disabled brothers and sisters in our house. At this event, lawmakers unveiled a slate of proposals aimed at improving accessibility and putting more teeth into existing laws. It's the most ambitious effort on these issues at the legislature in recent memory. So how many of you care about having affordable and accessible housing? How many of you here think people with disabilities should be able to get out of poverty and keep our benefits? How many of you think we deserve affordable and accessible transportation? According to the Centers for Disease Control, up to one in four adults in the United States have some type of disability. Despite that statistic, many people living with disabilities say it can be a very lonely experience. But this year at the State House, advocates say they have more allies than ever before and more ambition. This year at the Capitol, lawmakers will consider a major package of disability rights bills, dealing with everything from access to housing and government buildings to the accessibility of trailheads and ski lifts and the enforcement of existing disability rights laws. Supporters say they want to see Colorado lead the way on some of these issues, going above and beyond the Americans with Disabilities Act. But these are complicated proposals with the potential to have big impacts on the housing industry and local governments in particular. So in this episode, we're going to look at what lawmakers might do and meet their colleague who has single-handedly made this issue unignorable. So, Benda, let's go back to that press conference you attended. I want to hear more about Chad Winthrop. How did he end up there at the Capitol? So what he told me was that this wasn't a topic that was really on his radar much before his own accident. He had a little bit of a background working on national policy for the American Dental Association. He's a dentist, was a dentist. But Chad said that being in a wheelchair has made it clear to him how much is left to do to ensure that people living with disabilities get to fully participate in society. I think what people don't understand is how isolating it could be to be in a wheelchair. Um, even even the accommodations that do exist, which were, you know, on the one hand, I'm, I want to sit here and say we're grateful for. But as we shift our perspective, we want to be grateful, but at the same time, not feel like, oh, wow, I really just didn't expect this. We want to come to expect it. He said there that there are limitations to the accommodations that exist. Did he tell you more about that, like what that looks like for his daily life? Well, you heard him talk about what it's meant for his housing and trying to find an apartment. So just to say a little bit more about that, he told me about what a big issue it ended up being when he found an apartment near the hospital and the elevator just did not work so frequently. And when he told the management company, their initial solution is, we'll have to have someone carry you down the stairs. That really doesn't seem okay. Yeah, so things like that that aren't workable, and he eventually got out of the lease just because he didn't have an ability to move in and out of that apartment unit. 
He said it's also something he encounters just in a lot of places, even in situations that meet the current ADA legal standards. When I go into a bathroom stall in the airport, there might be five stalls with doors, only one of them large enough for a wheelchair, and that's the luxury suite. Everyone wants to go in that one. You've got your luggage, everything. Make every single stall that size. I can't tell you how many times I've gone into a bathroom, and my spinal cord injury, you know, the paralysis is obvious, but what's not obvious are the bowel and bladder issues and bladder spasticity, and when I've gotta go, I've gotta go. And I get into that bathroom, and every stall is empty except the one that I, the only one that's accessible to me is the first one that everyone wants to use. Oh, that's really interesting. I try to stay out of those stalls, but I have to admit I hadn't thought about the urgency factor there. What other issues did you hear about at the Capitol event? Several people talked about access to the outdoors and recreation. So another person I met there was Amanda Phalo. She was injured in a car accident when she was 16. She uses a wheelchair, and she said before that accident, every sport was her jam. She said she was just very athletic, and recently she got an adaptive bike that she said she can use on trails near her apartment. I'm having these moments when I'm just, like, high on life, and I'm out there, and, like, I can feel the wind in my hair. I can feel, like, oh, this is, thank you. Those moments of, yes, this is what I, I was missing. Thank you, Lord. But then to come up to the end of a trail where it's got one of those like maze entrances or something and it's like okay i don't think i've ever heard that term a, a maze entrance it, it sounds like something she can't get through yeah it's right I, I think it's those types of entrances where you kind of have to go back and forth between these railings or like a fence it's supposed to keep out livestock and then atvs and vehicles somehow getting on these trails that aren't supposed to be there. Amanda said when she comes to an entrance like that, it's too narrow for her bike. She can't go any further. It's soul crushing. I, I just like to, to drop from being up here to just like being invisible and not existing and having to depend on others in a way that's that's not not me. And she said she's frankly just tired of having to continually ask for basic access to things that everybody else just takes for granted. It's so interesting she talks about that in the area of outdoor recreation. It's such a big part of life in this state, but maybe also something where people who don't have mobility limitations aren't even very aware that outdoor sports could be made accessible. That's right. And it's not just about the design of trails. It's also whether people have access to the equipment they need. I heard from a woman named Blaine Mathis, and she's from Durango. She lost her leg below the knee after a rock climbing injury. She said she's still very, very active outdoors, but her gear has to include a whole bunch of different specialized prosthetics. I rock climb. I climb ice. I gravel ride, I um, mountain bike, I do it all. There's not a single prosthetic design that fits it all. Each activity requires a unique socket design, suspension system, and the style of foot that's required is also different. My insurance wouldn't cover these costs. Items were donated and I used old parts and pieces to build activity-specific prosthetic devices. Without the appropriate prosthesis, my limb can be left with blisters and skin breakdown. And Blaine's actually become a prosthetic specialist in the Four Corners region. She works primarily with young amputees, and three of them were at the Capitol with her for this advocacy day. And they were all there to talk about access to these prosthetic devices and how it really shapes, especially young people's, ability to do so many activities. 
that's a really broad range of issues you heard about at the event. I mean, you know, if you're going from DIA bathrooms to housing to trails. But everybody was there at the Capitol for an advocacy day. So what had they come to advocate for? What what do they want lawmakers to do? They do want lawmakers to do a lot, specifically around access and making sure people with disabilities can access more of the world. Now, some of these bills haven't been introduced yet, but behind the scenes, people are working on this huge slate of bills that would have big ramifications if it passes. Now, I know when you say haven't been introduced yet, behind the scenes, that means the details could still change. So it's always a little tricky to talk about stuff. But what do you know at this point? Sure. So the first thing is when it comes to access, they're really looking at three areas, housing, recreation, and government. Those are some pretty big topics. So let's start with housing. So the big thing in the works would require new apartment buildings and condos to make 12% of the units accessible for people with disabilities. I'm trying to think through what that would mean. I'm I'm guessing wider doors, flat entrance showers, um, Mm -hmm. grab bars, other stuff? Yes, well, that's part of it. But if you're talking about making an apartment accessible for someone who uses a wheelchair, then there's additional things like kitchen design, making sure cabinets and counters are at the right level. All of these units, this 12%, I think that's gonna be kind of the negotiation what percentage are specifically for wheelchair users versus accessible, but a little bit more broadly accessible. Backers say the priority here is to have more accessible housing available in the market. So there's not much renovation or just limitations on where people can live. Many of us have had that experience in trying to move into a new apartment, condo, townhome, or even back into our own homes. Um, and realized how inaccessible the world was. That's Democratic Representative David Ortiz from Littleton. He'll be the main sponsor on a lot of these bills. He said us there. That's because he uses a wheelchair. Yes. In fact, he's Colorado's first lawmaker to use a wheelchair. Ortiz is a U.S. Army veteran and former aviator, and he survived a catastrophic helicopter crash while serving in Afghanistan. He mentioned coming back home and discovering how inaccessible things can be. It sounds like that was his experience, but also that he's really trying to to address this for anyone in his situation. Exactly. And what he and others working on this say is that there has to be enough accessible units available. So when people who are using wheelchairs are looking for a place to live, they can actually find units that are available. Chad Winthrop, who we heard from earlier, said he's run into that issue. What I found is that while a limited number of units per building were allocated to that, they were occupied. And as I came to learn, often not by anyone that's disabled, the the building doesn't seem to be required to hold those apartments vacant and and incur that carrying cost um, in case somebody like me comes around. I would guess with this policy, the idea is more accessible units, more likelihood that when somebody who uses a wheelchair is out trying to find an apartment, they get a shot at one. But this is a big change for builders and apartment building owners. It definitely would be if something like this passes, because right now the number of accessible units that's required is well below 12 percent. So I really did want to know, what does the industry think of this idea? So I I went to someone at the Capitol who was very willing to talk about this, even though it's still in progress. I'm Drew Hamrick. I'm general counsel for the Colorado Apartment Association. 
that's a trade organization for education and advocacy for uh, the owners and managers of existing rental housing in the state. We uh, estimate we represent about 75% of the landlords in the state. Hamrick said his members do have some concerns about the proposal, but it wasn't actually the concerns I thought it might be. He is working on the bill with Representative Ortiz. There are a lot of parts of it they're fine with. For instance, a provision that would require accessibility in communal spaces within apartment complexes. So lobbies, mail rooms, fitness centers. Yes, things like making sure there aren't stairs in those areas, making sure there's braille on the elevator buttons, the mailboxes are reachable from a seated position. But when it comes to the actual units, things are a little bit trickier. Yeah, I can imagine. So the industry said units that are modified to be accessible for wheelchair use, these are known as type A units. And Hamrick said most people assume builders don't want to put those in because they're more expensive to build. And he said that's actually not the concern. The problem with them is once you build them, Nobody wants them, <laughs> and other than if you happen to be in a wheelchair. So you end up with a large inventory of units that are undesirable, have to be discounted, and people living in units they don't want to live in. Don't want to live in them because the modifications don't work if you're not in a wheelchair? I'm, I'm, I'm trying to picture this. Yeah, exactly. So let's say a wheelchair-adapted kitchen. That's going to have countertops that work from a seated position. There wouldn't be cabinets under the counters, hmm. under the sink. Okay. So. That's not ideal for someone who's standing up to cook. And, and there's other things, too, in those units, but that's one obvious area. Okay. Um, and one thing he pointed out is that while the bill sponsors want to create a lot more apartments that work for wheelchair users, that's only an estimated less than 2% of the population. His big concern is he wants to make sure there's not an oversupply. And also what may work for someone in a wheelchair may be the exact opposite of what someone with a different type of disability needs. That really feels like kind of an unsolvable tension. You've got wheelchair users who really understandably want to make sure there's enough supply so they have a chance to get one of these units. You've got apartment owners who only want the bare minimum so that they don't have units that they can't rent at full price. You said that there are negotiations going on, but it seems really hard that both sides could walk away happy from this. We'll see. I think it's different than some of the issues where people are diametrically opposed on the, the need or even the idea. So from talking to the Apartment Association, I think the concept of this is not something they're opposed to. So it's trying to find that right balance. Okay. And, and you did mention kind of a balance area, which is that the bill isn't just about wheelchair accessible apartments. Some portion of this 12% would be apartments that are more accessible, but maybe not fully modified in the way that somebody would need for a wheelchair. Yeah. And this is all changing. So the exact percentages, I'm not, you know, it's been in flux, but those are called type B. So these are units that aren't designed to have all the wheelchair modifications, but are still more accessible than a typical unit. So maybe wider doors or handles instead of knobs on doors grab bars in the bathroom, things like that. Those units, Hamrick said, have a much easier time getting rented. So it's easier for apartments to build those. Yeah, I think 
one thing about those modifications is that they also suit older homeowners as people become less mobile. And my, my parents, you know, have been installing things like this slowly over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, so possibly a wider tenant base there also. Sponsors have talked about that as we have an aging population and people may be downsizing from their residences and want to live in something smaller, making sure it works for people with a wide range of issues, but maybe aren't in a wheelchair. Outdoor recreation, you said, is another thing that they want to introduce some bills on this year. Mm -hmm. And I'm really curious about this. After hearing from those women at the press conference, they raised some really interesting issues. How do advocates want to change the law around that? The first thing is to create a task force to create standards. The goal here is to really look at best practices that are out there and have Colorado be much more proactive about setting a standard on campgrounds, trails, ski areas, ski lifts, and use of adaptive equipment so people can access that depending upon whatever activity they're doing. This does sound like something where there does need to be a lot more awareness. So when Amanda, that cyclist you talk to, maybe in the future she gets to one of those trailheads and they'll have already thought about making sure that she can get onto the path. Yeah, and to go back to some of the people I met at the state capitol, There was the woman, Blaine. She's a prosthetic specialist. She's in Durango, and she was just really excited for a bill that would expand insurance coverage for prosthetics. The goal here is to have young people get more access to these devices for specific sports. She was really vivid in how she's had to make her own prosthetics, so it sounds like this would open up possibilities for younger people? Yeah, this bill has actually been introduced, and it would require a health insurer to cover not just the basic everyday prosthetic you'd be using, but one additional for an adapted sport. This would apply to kids and young adults up to 26 years old. So like a kid who needs a prosthetic to walk, wants to run track, this would require their insurer to also supply that running adapted prosthesis? Yes. As long as their primary doctor says it's necessary for them to do this sport and to stay active. I know Governor Polis. I hate to sort of bring this idea down, but he has taken a pretty hard line in the last few years on bills that put new mandates on health insurers. We've seen him veto some of them that had very sympathetic constituencies. So I do wonder what happens if this gets to his desk. I think with this, you know, I I looked up who's lobbying for this bill and I didn't find any opponents registered against this bill. So I feel like there's not a huge number of people that fit into this category in the state. It may not be a driver of insurance costs. There's groups monitoring it and then other groups supporting it. We'll see, but usually with things that are going to be contentious, you will see a lot of people opposing the bill throughout the process. Hmm. And I would say that it's a bipartisan bill, and I think it has universal appeal because we were talking about people with various disabilities. It, It can be isolating so many variety of disabilities, and especially with young people the goal of making sure children and youth and young adults can really participate with their peers and a lot more activities and making that easier, I think, is something that will have broad appeal at the statehouse. I think you've got a good point there. It does seem like a noble goal. Finally, you mentioned that the advocates who are pushing this legislation, they've been trying to open up access to housing, to outdoors. They also want to look at access to government for people with physical disabilities in particular. Obviously, this is something that Representative Ortiz has had some very direct experience with as the first lawmaker in a wheelchair, like you said. 
you've done a couple of stories already about the modifications they've had to make at the Capitol just to let him do his job. That's right. The state had to put in ramps around the House chamber so he could access the chamber floor and his desk. And then more recently, they put a lift for the speaker's podium. So lawmakers in the majority party and he is in the majority preside at times over the chamber, but it's from that speaker's podium. So there's an internal lift so he can get up to that podium. He's been in the legislature a little more than two years. This is his second term. And there are a lot of places on the floor and the state Senate he can't get to. Wow, that is so fundamental. If you think about lawmakers coming into the Capitol and after term limits, wanting to go from one chamber to the other or wanting to rise in leadership, and the building physically doesn't let him do that at this point. Yeah, so he can get to his desk, but there are certain jobs in the legislature. Even working on bills, lawmakers walk throughout the chamber and they move around the perimeter of the chamber and he doesn't have that ability. That's something that he's still working on, is trying to make the entire Capitol building accessible. But he said he also wants local governments to do more to ensure that people with mobility issues can fully participate. If it's a place uh, where the public is to be heard, whether we're talking about city, state, county, school boards, then those places need to be accessible at that period. And not just for people coming in, but for elected leaders. It's sort of surprising to me that this is something the state needs to do more on because I do realize this is probably kind of naive, but I would have thought the Americans with Disabilities Act should have covered this. I mean, these are public buildings. It's a federal law and it's like decades old. Well, as Ortiz's experience makes clear, there's modifications, but that doesn't mean the building's fully accessible. We've been in a lot of official chambers, but even if you're just walking through or going into that building for something in your local community, you can see that where your city council meets, where a judge is, where county commissioners sit, a lot of times I think it's up on this platform. You have to take these steps. There's that's a little dais. Yeah. Right, right. So that's the tradition in public buildings. That's something that Denver City Council member Chris Hines has had to deal with for a while. I am the first elected official in Denver's history, local, state, or federal, who uses a wheelchair to get around. When I was inaugurated in 2019, that was 29 years after ADA was passed, uh, city council chambers were not wheelchair accessible. The restrooms uh, were not wheelchair accessible. And sure, yes, it was law, but it took someone getting elected to actually affect that change. So what Ortiz wants to do, and Heinz is excited about this, is give cities and counties and other government entities, I think it's six years, and that number could change, to look at all their facilities and figure out what's not accessible and fix it. That does seem like sort of a basic thing if you want to make serving in government more accessible to everyone. I guess I'll be the Grinch and say it would also probably come at a taxpayer cost, maybe kind of a high taxpayer cost in some buildings. That could be true. I reached out to some local governments and they're still working through this. And I know that as this moves through, we will hear from a lot of school boards and county commissioners and we'll get a lot of different perspectives on how feasible it is, what they think the costs are, what the challenges would be. And if it's a historic building, are there restrictions on kind of what modifications they can make? But for advocates for this, they say it is just basic fairness. And another thing they see as basic fairness is making the meetings as accessible as possible. Like, how so? This may be for people who may not be able to get to these meetings in person. So yes, in this context, we're talking about people with disabilities, but there's a lot of people who can't get to a meeting in person. So the idea is to live stream meetings and hearings and 
a lot of us got used to operating that way during the pandemic. And Ortiz wants to make it a requirement that governments have a remote option. And this is not just the right thing to do for people with disabilities, but folks, it's the right thing to do for working families. Every person, regardless of who they are, deserves to participate in our government and have their voice heard. get back here as we sort of wrap things up to Ortiz. We've heard his voice through this episode. We haven't talked a ton about him. Clearly, he is central to this legislative agenda. And when you talk to people working in this space, how big a deal is it to have someone with his life experience there serving at the Capitol able to work on this? It's a big deal. I asked Chad Winthrop about that specifically, and he described it as paramount. And as Rep. Ortiz frequently says, uh, there are so many things that he just didn't see um, from a wheelchair's point of view until he was in one. And uh, our lawmakers aren't in them, so they're not seeing them either. I guess one thing we'll be watching for for the rest of this session is to see whether his colleagues are there to back him up on these bills and this ambition or if they're going to push to scale him back. It's very ambitious and we haven't even gone over all the bills. (laughs) Really? We couldn't in this episode. Yeah, there's just so many details. What's the biggest thing we left out? Making it so the current ADA laws and disability discrimination laws can be enforced. There's negotiations on that, legal recourse there when places aren't compliant. So that's one issue we'll be following, and there's still others. That sounds very complicated, and yes, like it could be a tricky one to work through. And Ortiz is the first to say, look, he doesn't want to be the only one at the Capitol to really know this issue from the perspective of using a wheelchair. And during this event at the Capitol, he told the audience, hey, it's kind of a lonely position to be this only one at the Capitol. Come join me. And there was a woman in the audience afterwards. He was taking questions and she was sitting in the back and she raised her hand and said, hey, how can I run for office? So he said, come see me afterward. Maybe he'll have another ally there before too long. (laughs) Maybe we'll be covering her eventually, too. Purplish CPR's podcast about politics and policy with Benta Berkland and Megan Verlee from our public affairs team. Follow this and all the episodes wherever you get podcasts, including CPR.org. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to our own team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Tom Hess, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbraño, Shane Rumsey, Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. You are with CPR News and KRCC.